Please turn with me to Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had done all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thanks for Acts 2. And we want your blessing upon us as we consider what it means for us as a church to take another step in this matter of extravagant grace. So would you come now and teach us so that we can be the kind of church in the world that you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we ended our service by uh, distributing out in each of our services to 70 of you a gift, a gift from um, some of our elders in order to be able to uh, go out and bless people in the community. And uh, I know that a number of you have been able to do that. I know some of you are also still praying about that. I know others of you who said, hey, I didn't get an envelope, but um, I'm going to do it anyways. And uh, it's been remarkable to hear some of the stories. If you want to see some of those stories that... um, of what has happened in our community. Once you go to this website, yourchurch.com forward slash extravagant grace, there's some compelling things that God has already done through our church. And um, if um, if you still are in the process of finding a way to give that gift, do that. And then if you would, please just jot that story down because our goal was not just to give money away. It's actually to inspire all of us in this matter of extravagant grace. In fact, I was at a meeting uh, this week with some other folks from the uh, area of Indianapolis and somebody from a nonprofit came up to me and said, hey, I don't know What's going on in your church, which is always kind of an interesting greeting. I was like, uh, so yeah. He's like, but I had a volunteer sign up to be a part of our ministry this week. And, and she said that the reason she did so is because she needs to get on board with this thing that you guys call extravagant grace or something like that. I was like, yes, yes. I was really proud of uh, that one person and, and those of you also who've kind of embraced this um, calling this important, I think, reality of what makes our church special, what makes any church special uh, for that matter. But what I want you to understand, though, is that the idea of extravagant grace is not just about money. It's not just about time. It's not just about resources. At the end of the day, the reason that we're talking about this is because I want you to be happy. I mean, from the depth of my soul, I, I, I resonate with what Paul said to Timothy, that you're to warn those who are rich in this world that they be not high-minded or entrust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God. And then it says, and to give generously. And then it says this at the end of that verse, so that they may lay hold of that which is truly life. I'm just here to tell you that living with an extravagant grace mindset is not only a good thing to do, it's the best thing to do. And that real joy comes from giving, not from receiving. It'd be a tragedy if you walk through life having the gift of receiving, (laughs) right? That's not a good way to live. That's not a gracious, God-centered, gospel-oriented way to live. And so my aim is to help you understand this matter of extravagant grace so you can lay hold of that which is truly life. Two weeks ago, we talked about the matter of the gospel and how it helps us to understand extravagant grace in that we live in a broken world and um, sinners need grace. 
Jesus brings grace, and grace at the end of the day wins. And that's what happens at the end of the Bible and the book of Revelation. But that also can happen even in your life individually as you bring the gospel into relationships and as you're gracious. You you give evidence that grace can and does win. Then last week we took another step and we looked at the fullness of Jesus, that from the fullness of Jesus we have all received grace upon grace and connecting Jesus' fullness to the grace that we have received. Now today we're going to take our third step and final step, and this is what we're going to see today, and that is that extravagant grace is a vital part of a healthy church. I want to help you to see today that in the early church in Acts chapter 2, this idea of extravagant grace was a part of their DNA, and I think part of the reason why um, God has blessed this church since its founding back in 1985 is because of extravagant grace being part of the core reality of who we are as a church ministry. And I want to be a good steward of that and be sure that as we grow and as we continue to move forward in time that we don't lose this really vital core value of what I think the church is supposed to be and what our church has been. So today I want to talk about this matter of extravagant grace in regards to a church culture. So what does an extravagant grace culture look like? Well, go over to Acts chapter 2 and let's talk a little bit about the early church. Acts 2 is the record of really the church's birth, if you will. Um, In the book of Acts, we find that after the resurrection of Jesus and after his ascension... Um, another celebration takes place called the Passover or, or called Pentecost. So after the Passover meal, which then also was the time in which Jesus was crucified, we have Pentecost some 50 days after the Passover. So Jews from all over the world gathered, and they were in the city of Jerusalem for this this very important festival. And the disciples were in an upper room, and they were waiting. Jesus had told them to wait. They were praying and waiting, and In the middle of that upper room comes the Holy Spirit who then appears on all of them with little tongues of fire and they begin speaking in languages of the people who have gathered in the city of Jerusalem. They fan out into the city and begin preaching Christ. And in one sermon, the Apostle Peter has 3,000 people who were converted and baptized. I mean, it was an unbelievable moment of God's movement of His Spirit. Now Luke, in Acts chapter 2 records what happens after this momentous movement of God's Spirit. And what we find are some characteristics regarding this church. What were they doing? Acts chapter 2 helps us to see what the early church was all about. Look at Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. So here we have four key elements that marked that early church. Part of the reason why we have these elements is, really, I think Luke may be defending 3,000 people were converted, 3,000 people were baptized. Was this real? And so he shows some of the reality of what's happening in this early church. We, We see a number of things. The first thing that we see is that there's a level of depth. They were devoting themselves, and that word means that they were continually doing something with intense effort, possibly even with a level of difficulty involved. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This would have been the oral tradition of what the disciples had heard from Jesus. And so they were communicating. This is what Jesus said. This is is the words that he communicated. This was his heart. This is what he 
communicated. And so they're passing that teaching on. It's a fulfillment of Jesus' command in Matthew 28 that they are to go and to teach people everything that they have observed, everything that Jesus has commanded. So these believers are to gather and they are going to hear what Jesus commands. The second thing in this context of depth is they were not only committed to the apostles' teaching, but also to fellowship. Now, this is the first use of a really important Greek word. It's the word koinonia. And it means togetherness. It means close association. It means sharing. Now, later on in verses 44 and 45, we're going to unpack this word even more fully so that you see how it is lived out in the early church. That's the main reason why we're in this text. But just for now, I want you to notice that this idea of fellowship was a vital part of the early church's identity and their experience. The third thing we see, the apostles' teaching, fellowship. Now we also have the breaking of bread. All of this is part of their depth. They're involved in the, that sort of new Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, where Jesus inaugurates this new meal. They're to take the, the bread. It refers to the body, the juice, or the wine. that refers to Christ's blood. And in this memorial meal, they are to do what Jesus did for them and to them in order to remember him. There's probably some sort of love feast connected with that as well, some sort of gathering of food. Up in Michigan, we used to call those potlucks. In Indiana, they're called pitch-ins. I don't know why they're called pitch-in, but pitch-in, I don't know why potluck. That's maybe a little too gambling-related. I don't know. So it's, never know what you're going to get, right? I don't know why. Some of you can do a uh, a linguistic study as to how we got those words. I'd love to know all about that, but I don't want to spend any time on that, honestly. So um, you have the breaking of bread, the gathering of food together. They're having fellowship together and enjoying one another's company. Then we also have the prayers. Fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. So part of the, the Jewish faith, which these folks came out of into Christianity, was a regular rhythm of prayers whether it was personal prayer or corporate prayer. So something of that sort continued in the context of the early church. So this is how the early church began, with these core dynamics. Prayers, breaking of bread, fellowship, the apostles' teaching. Why do I share all of this with you? Well, because, here's why. Because extravagant grace is set in the context of all these other things. And that's important for you to realize for two reasons. First, because extravagant grace needs to be the part, needs to be a very important part of what makes the church the church. I would argue that if extravagant grace isn't a central part of the church's identity, then the question is, do you really understand what grace is in the first place? So, so extravagant grace needs to be, and it was, a very important part of the church's identity. But secondly, it's not that extravagant grace is the only thing. It's set in the context of a lot of other really important things. There, there, you, can get out of, you can get out of balance. You can have a church that so emphasizes truth and teaching that there doesn't feel like there's any grace. On the other hand, you can have a church that so emphasizes grace and extravagant grace, but in the absence of truth, you wonder where's the depth? Where the sweet spot is and where God really seems to bless is when churches combine a substantive commitment to truth and yet also a deep understanding and a compassionate longing for extravagant grace. And when truth and grace combine in that wonderful um, junction of those two concepts, the church becomes a wonderful, beautiful place to be. This is what the case with the early church. There was balance, balance between grace and truth. The church had extravagant grace in the context of all of these other things. Secondly, the early church also, this, this culture, there was a, there was power connected with it. 
There is, there is something, I would suggest to you, there is something nearly irresistible about a church that loves the gospel and lives out the gospel. Verse 43 tells us what this was all about. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. So what happens here is that God miraculously empowers the apostles to perform these miracles. And these miracles, it seems like their aim was to validate the work of Christ now as mediated through these apostles. Does God still do miracles today? Sure he does. Does he do it the same way he did it in Acts 2? I don't, I don't think so. But the point of this is that there was awe upon the people. They knew that God was at work among this people. And they saw it, not only in regards to their teaching, not only in regards to their evangelism, but they also saw it in the way in which they loved one another. And this is what Jesus said. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They they saw the love, the kindness, the graciousness, the means by which they were meeting other needs within the body. And this supernatural reality was being broadcast to the world such that awe came upon people. They began to see that God was doing something in their midst. You see... The reason why it's important for you to understand extravagant grace is this, that when you engage in extravagant grace, you're being part of God's work in someone else. As well, when you're the recipient of extravagant grace, when you've got a need, you know, man, my faith has really been built. I've been helped to know that God really has heard my cry. I think it was last Sunday, after one of our services, somebody told me that They were the recipient of extravagant grace in the middle of a really significant need of their life. And they said, Mark, you need to know this extravagant grace thing. It is real. They were in line at a grocery store, and um, money was really, really tight, struggling to figure out how to put food on the table. They put the food on the belt and began watching it go through, and, and then somebody who they didn't know behind them just stepped forward and said, you know what, can I buy your groceries today? I just feel led to do that. And they paid for their groceries. And this person said to me, you know, it just God just knew what our needs were and took care of us. And so part of the reason why I want you to realize about this extravagant grace thing is that when you're engaged in it on the providing end or you're the recipient of it, it's, it's a faith builder. It, it reminds you and it reminds others that, you know what, this thing called Christianity, it actually works. It's not just something we believe. It's not something we think. It's not something we just sing about. It actually works. And our world needs to see Christianity that really, really works. Awe came upon them. Here's the third thing. There was fellowship. And again, back to the thing we said before, the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. But now we see how this fellowship is lived out in verses 44 to 45. It says this, And all who believed were together, And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So here we see what this fellowship looked like. So there was a sense of togetherness. That's what the text says. They they believed were together. It means not only that they met together, but they were together in heart. Secondly, we see how this togetherness expressed itself. And it says that the people had all things in common. Now, this does not mean that they lived communally, like they had absolutely no possessions. Other texts clearly show that they did have possessions. What it meant is this, that they saw their possessions through a a lens that was differently than seeing their possessions as just belonging only to them. 
They saw their possessions as the conduit that could be used to be able to meet the needs of other people. They, they loved God and they loved others such that they saw the needs of others as a priority for them to meet those needs. So, so this is what the gospel does when we get it. it. It changes what we have received and how we view what we have received. So that happened, and that's what I, I wanted to have happen last week, that you came to church and you received $100. You, you didn't expect to come to church and receive $100, did you? Or maybe some of you, that's why you're here this week. You heard that that happened. You're like, hey, what's next week, right? So you're showing up and... But when you got that hundred dollars, you didn't feel like it was your own, did it? it it's been, I'm a steward of this. Now I need to figure out how to be able to give this away. And, and what happens in Acts chapter two is that's not just how we should view stuff that we've been given unexpectedly. That's how we need to view everything in life. The gospel is meant to pull us out of our self-concern, our self-focus, and help us to be concerned about the needs of others. And so according to to verse 45, what they did is they, they sold what they had in order to meet the needs of others. They connected the needs of people with their possessions, and they held their possessions loosely, and and they, they gave up on the word mine. Man, this is important. I mean... Any parent who's raised a child, you, you never had to teach your kids to say mine. Right? I never sat down with my kids and said, okay, listen, i got to tell you something here. When you go to Sunday school class, kids are going to try and take your stuff. Don't let them. And when they try and do that to you, here's what you need to learn. A very important word. Ready? Repeat after me. Mine. Say that. Mine. Good. Say it louder. Mine. Good. Now really mean mine. Yes. Say it just like that. Go in Sunday school and don't let kids boss you around. Don't let them take your stuff and say mine, mine, mine. I never had to tell my kids that, right? Instead, what do I have to say all the way in? Share, 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 right? It's amazing. Kids, you're in the service here. You may not have a lot of money. You got a little piggy bank. But the reality is the stuff that you have there's a, grabs a hold of our souls. Or even crazy things. Like when I was a kid, like where I sat in the car was a status symbol. I used to fight with my sister about that. I had a line. You know, don't come across the line. This is my space. This is your space. And... I mean, there's all sorts of just crazy, silly, dumb things that as human beings, we, we tend to think about our stuff as our own. And when you begin to uncurl your hands from your possessions, it's not just countercultural, it's counterhuman. And the world looks at that and is just like, what in the world is so different about you? How is it that you can act this way? What is, what is, what is going on inside of you? And the answer is the gospel. And last week we saw this. Paul said, what do you have? But you haven't received. And the answer, of course, is nothing. But our problem is that that's not how we often see our stuff. When we, when we receive things, we, we immediately think, awesome, I got a gift, I'm just going to use it. And I'm just going to, I don't even think about the needs of people around me. Now, I think I may have used this illustration before, maybe 2008, 2009, but we have so many other people that are, that are new. I thought we'd just do it again anyways. And those of you who, um, you know, heard the illustration before, you may not have gotten it and, or maybe it leaked. And so we're just going to do it again. So when you came into church today, um, many of you received M&Ms, right? How many of you received M&Ms? Right, so sweet, last week we gave out $100, this week we gave out M&M's, you're like, what's next, right? So we received M&M's, how many of you did raise your hand, M&M's again, got them? Okay, very good. So, very good. So just so you know, we gave out, well, let me let me do this, how many of you did not receive M&M's? Let me see your hands. Oh my goodness, I am so sorry. <laughs> because we gave out enough M&M's for everyone in the room to have one. 
So I actually got a text before I came in that Jay Justice, that you ate all your M&Ms. He <laughs> did? Yeah. Mitch Armbruster sent me a text. <laughs> he said, Jay Justice ate all his M&Ms. He ate them all. He ate all of his M&Ms. All right. Now, who else got M&Ms over here? No one's going to raise their hand now. They're like, no way, man. No way. All right. So did you share your M&Ms, David? I gave them all away. You gave them all away. Yeah, you knew it was coming, didn't you? <laughs> and the person what? And the person I gave them to. Ate them all. Okay. Is that person sitting next to you? Oh, okay, gotcha. All right. So uh, remind me again, who did not get any M&Ms whatsoever? Okay, no M&Ms. Why don't you come up here a minute? I, I'm so sorry for your uh, for your pain. I am. Stand right here. Right there. Very good. Okay. These selfish people didn't even help you out. So um, yeah, I'm just I'm really, really sorry. So do you want M&Ms? Do you like M&Ms? Uh, no, thank you, but I'll take one to give away. Will you take one to give away? All right. So let's just say that you loved M&Ms more than anything else in the world. <laughs> let's just pretend that, okay? And, um, okay. I love so, M&Ms. Yeah, that's more good. Than anything in the world. Good. Awesome. All right. So here's what we do. Here's what we do. My brother here needs M&Ms, loves M&Ms. Here's what we do. Lord bless my brother. He needs M&Ms, and uh, he, he needs them. So would you just pour out M&Ms on him? Give him, oh, Lord, an abundant. Let M&Ms just fall into his lap. Provide him just over and abundantly, all, all more than you could ask or think, Lord. Yes, do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you, man. Thanks. Have a seat. Thank you very much. So, let's go. Yeah. Let's go. You can give them away. So, that's what we do, don't we? We have a wealth of resources in our hands. We come in contact with somebody who's in need. And we have all the ability in the world to be able to help in some even smaller significant way. And for some reason, it doesn't cross our mind that what I'm holding in my hands could actually be the means of helping the person in need. You see, that's why we need to talk about this matter of extravagant grace, because something internally needs to change with how we look at the things that we possess. Something needs to change with how we view our money, our possessions, and even the needs of people around us. Some people have a mindset of, you know, if there's a need, then the church should meet it. And you know what? And the church does meet needs. But can I just push a little bit? If there's a need and you see it, you should meet it. And we have a benevolence fund, and and we have a great team that uses those financial resources. And you know, the needs that we try and meet are the needs when nobody else can really meet the need. So if you have a small group and a need comes up in your group, I want to encourage you, you should try and meet that need. Uh, It's biblical. First Timothy, second Timothy talks about if there's a a need in the family, family needs to meet that, that the church shouldn't be burdened. So family needs to take care of family in terms of needs and things of that sort. Can the church step in? Yes, absolutely it should. It's very appropriate. But the point is, we can't give out of someone else's checkbook. We can't give out of the church's general fund or the benevolence fund. We need to realize that we've been given the financial resources. We've been given even time. Or even, I'll even apply it this way. We've been given um, emotion. Ever had it before where you've just, someone needs help, they need someone to care and love on them, and you just, you're emotionally spent, and you're just like, you know what? Rather than praying for someone or caring for them, you just kind of pat them on the back and say, well, hope that works out for you. And you, you say it nicer than that. But the reality is you, you hold your heart, you hold your money, you hold your possessions, when the reality is that God's put you on the earth for the purpose of intersecting between 
God's resources and their needs. And I just want to suggest to you, when the church gets on board with that plan, unbelievable things take place. Read some of the stories in the Extravagant Grace site, you'll see them. Some of the stories from our church's history, you'll, you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about. God moves in amazing and powerful ways. What I'm talking about here is what you might even think as an economy, an extravagant grace economy. And I want to show you this. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. There's just a couple of things I want you to see moving out of the book of Acts. About 20 years or so after Pentecost, by the way, the notes say 50. I did the math poorly in my study. So about 20 years after Pentecost, uh, Paul wrote the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. And he, he wrote it to a church to motivate them to meet the needs of, um, among other things, he wrote it to them about the needs of the saints in Jerusalem who had some serious financial challenges because of uh, a famine. And so Paul wanted them to give. And so he leveraged the generosity of the Macedonian church, which were very poor people, to help the Corinthian church to get motivated about their giving. And so one of the greatest sections in the Bible, two greatest chapters in the Bible, probably on the subject of giving, are 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And I want to just highlight a few things, because this has been really helpful um, for me, I've actually we've taught on this before here, but I just want to remind you what this text says. Look at Second Corinthians 8, verses 8 to 15. Here's what Paul says. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others, but to, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So there's a connection between genuine love and a concern for extravagant grace. I mean, that, that makes sense, right? If a mom or a dad loves their kid, they're going to they're gonna be they're gonna take care of them. They're going to pour out grace on them. They're not going to neglect them. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Again, there's the gospel. You're following the example of Jesus. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. In other words, they had said, look, we're going to help the saints in Jerusalem. And Paul writes in Second Corinthians to remind them that they said they were going to be involved and they were going to help. And then they, got to make, they needed to make good on it. And so Paul was encouraging them not just to say things that you're going to do, but actually to do the things that you're going to do. All the best intentions in the world regarding extravagant grace really don't amount to much unless you actually take action on it. And then he says this, verse 12, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And what, what, what Paul means here is this, that look, God's given all of us something. And so you can't give out of somebody else's pocketbook. You can't give out of someone else's... You have stuff. You have money. You have time. God's given you stuff out of your stuff. You need to look at the needs of people around you. Verse 13. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. There's God's economy right there. And that God gives resources to people so that they can help people who are in need so that when you're in need people who have resources can then be able to help you that's that's how it works that there is this this reciprocity that's taking place as it is written whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack so 
There's a mindset, a mindset shift here that takes place that we understand, God, you've given me my financial resources for the purpose, not just of meeting my own needs, and, and that's legitimate, but also to be able to meet the needs of others. So when we start talking about this way, immediately, I know there's some of you who start thinking, so I have to be generous? That's, that's what the Bible's saying? Or if I'm gracious, some of you think this way, someone might take advantage of me. And I'm sure there are, there are a few of you that thought, man, you gave out $100, someone could just take that and spend it on themselves. And as elders, we talked about that. And my statement was, yeah, if that need is that great and the person is going to do that, I'm willing to take that risk. If, if, if you are looking to be involved in extravagant grace and never take a risk of never being taken advantage of, you'll never do it. And just rem, rem, be reminded that Jesus was completely taken advantage of. I know there's balance. But I've, I've run into to people at times who have just like, eh, it's too risky, I don't know. And as a result, there, there, there's, there's no grace. Or maybe you're thinking, if I give, I might not have enough. It's a common fear. Well, Paul answers all of these things. Look at 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6. Some of you may need to go back and just do an in-depth study and read through this. If you feel like, boy, this is an area I need to grow in. Then 2 Corinthians 9, um, 6 through 10 is a helpful text. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So there's a direct connection. What you sow, you also reap. Sometimes that's in a negative context. If you sow bad deeds, you're, you're going to have bad consequences. But in this context, it's actually a positive one that... That no farmer is, is going to have any credibility when he goes to harvest if he complains when he has no crop because he didn't plant any seed. Crops are bad this year. Nothing ever worked out. Oh, what'd you plant? Well, I didn't plant anything. You'd be like, what? Are you a farmer? What are you, are you an idiot? What, you know, what is it? What, what, what is this? If you don't plant, you're not going to be able to receive a harvest. And that's the same thing when it comes to extravagant grace that there's a there's a harvest but notice what the harvest is each one of you must give as he's made up in his mind not reluctantly or under compulsion for god loves a cheerful giver so there's there's joy that's connected with this you don't have to give god wants you to give and if your heart isn't ahead of your giving you need to find a way to get your heart ahead of your giving and get it there quickly And then verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. There is a understandable gap that generosity at any level, whether it's time or emotion or money or possessions, creates. You, You give stuff and here's your needs. And what this text is saying is that when you do so, you're trusting God to fill in the gap. And by the way, God's worthy of that gap. And he can be trusted. He can supply favor with your boss he can make your car run 300,000 miles he can give you the grace to be content with your home and your career like you never were before he can give you grace verse 9 as it is written he has distributed freely he has given to the poor his righteousness endures forever verse 10 he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and here it is and increase the harvest of your righteousness so the reason that we're talking about this is not because of a budget issue or because of money at college park church is because i want you to experience the beauty of a harvest of a new level of righteousness as you see The beauty of what it is to give rather than just to receive. Verse 12. 
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. How cool is that? It's not only meeting the needs of people, but it actually creates thanksgiving where those people say, God, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I experienced this. I, I shared this idea with our elders. Hey, what if we took some money from our benevolence fund and we, we gave it out into our congregation so that people would then use it in a benevolent way and then they, they could just go and give that money away. And our, our elders wisely said, that's, that's a good idea, but we don't, we don't think that doing it through the benevolence fund is probably a good way because people had already given to the benevolence fund. They may not have approved that. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. And so we ended the meeting and I thought this idea was done. And then I got three calls from our elders before 9 o'clock the next morning. Say, hey, love the idea. Don't want to fund it through benevolence. We'll go ahead and help do it. And we ended up getting $1,000 more from their generosity than I had proposed in the first place anyways. And as a result, I went to bed Monday night going, God, you know exactly what we need. When it even comes to church ministry, and you are always able to provide it. And my heart was filled with thanksgiving because of their generosity. And um, 700 of you were motivated to go out. Or the 700. 70 times 3 is 21 plus 0. 210 of you. There we go. So, wow, that's, I can do a few things publicly, but not math. Okay, there we go. So, so 210, 21,000 of you or 20, 210 of you were motivated to go out into the community and you spread the good message of the gospel by virtue of extravagant grace because of their generosity. See how it all is connected? So I'm thankful. Our people in the community are thankful and there's a seed that's planted that then results in a harvest of righteousness. So again, this isn't about money, per se. It's not about time. It's not about possessions. It's actually about what it means to actually create worship in your heart and in the hearts of others. Verse 13, By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What a beautiful thing. So Paul aims to motivate the church by virtue of the need but also because he longs for them to be gracious. So can I just be honest with you? Some of you, you're here and you really struggle with giving, not like it's hard, but you don't. And not just to this church, but anywhere. And can I just tell you, that's got to change. And not because God needs your money or the church needs your money or other people need... Listen, because you need to give it away. Because if you don't, the result will be your heart over time will shrivel because you'll be convinced that life is about possessions and it isn't about possessions and it's not about money and no amount of money could ever make you secure or happy or fulfilled. At the end of the day, if you don't give, you're missing out on laying hold of that which is truly life. Others of you, you've been blessed beyond your dreams financially and you give and you give big numbers. I just want to challenge you to not just give a big number. I want you to think about giving in a costly way. Because the bigger the number doesn't necessarily equate with generosity. Someone who could give very little could be much more generous than someone who's given a ton. And so I want you to think about not just big numbers, but how costly this is. And, and what is it that giving would actually, whether it's extravagant grace of money or possessions or time, what does it mean for you to really emulate the sacrificial life and the work of Christ? 
Some of you also need to see the relationships around you, like your small group and even your immediate family. Those relationships are not there just simply so that you can have uh, good relationships and, and, and learn about the scriptures in small groups as, as much as that is a purpose. But your, your role is also there to meet one another's needs and to be a help to each other when, when life is hard and difficult. And then I also just want you to see extravagant grace is not just about money, but your, your calendar and your, your um, emotion and the um, things that you would hold on to and say, no, this is my thing. What is it in, in your life? It might not be money. It could be something else. And, and what is it that maybe God today wants you to kind of uncurl your hands a bit and say, God, I want to hold this a little more openly. You see... Back to Acts chapter 2, the, the effects of extravagant grace was this. This is, this is where it all ends as far as Luke's portrayal of the culture of the early church. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice that. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. They got a reputation as being a generous people. And they should because they had received generously the gospel. And, oh, I long for our church to to be known as a extravagantly gracious people. It's been part of our history for so many years, and we we can't lose that. And I'm not saying that because I feel like we are. I'm just saying it's that important Because what follows is the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And I I think that the Lord entrusts more ministry to people who He knows He can trust with more ministry. I think He... He allows a church to experience more opportunity to reach unreached peoples like you saw in that video. And some of the things that we're thinking about doing are just stunning to me. And, I, and I, I, the needs in our world and our community are great. And I want to just help you understand it as a church that, that we need both truth and grace. And when those two things are combined in a beautiful balance, God is, I think, pleased to bless and give us even more opportunity to impact the kingdom for His glory and for the advancement of His name. Frankly, when a church gets truth and grace right, it's irresistible to a world that's so broken. So people who get grace, who, who get grace, who understand grace, they, they give grace. And in the midst of a world filled with sin and brokenness and pain, things that are so great, the good news is, is that grace is greater still. And we, of all people, get that. At least we should. And therefore we ought to then give that. So the hymn writer put it this way, Sin and despair like the sea waves cold. Boy, that's a great way to say it, isn't it? They threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? There's a hopelessness behind that statement. And then here's the hope. Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you can be today. Would you sing this with me? So grace, grace, God's grace, 
Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Oh Lord, help us to live that out. If we believe that truth, if we believe that grace is greater than all our sin, then we of of all people ought to be the most gracious, most generous, most kind-hearted people in the world. That's a that's a heavy mantle, Lord Jesus. And yet it's one that you lived out for us. You became poor so that we might become rich. What a thought. So would you help us in this next week to be brought across the right people and conversations and situations to be able to pour out our lives, pour out God's, your grace, God, upon people that we might make the testimony of the name of your Son irresistibly attractive to the world. So help us. Our world is broken. Sinners need grace. And grace wins. So help us to pour out grace for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you, College Park. Thanks for coming today. I love you.